What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, flamethrowers. Shireen here. Today, I have Dr. Sophia Azeb, who is an assistant professor of Black Studies in the Department of English Language and Literature at the University of Chicago. Her current book project, Another Country, Constellations of Blackness and Afro-Arab Cultural Expression, examines how Blackness and Black identity is variously translated, mobilized, circulated, and contested by African-American, Afro-Caribbean, African and Afro-Arab cultural and political figures across North Africa and Europe in the 20th century. She's a regular contributor to the Funambulist magazine. She's a dear friend, an educator, community organizer, and she loves popcorn. <laughs> Doctora, hello. Hello, Shireen. It's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And I wanted to take a minute to recognize our listeners who are grieving, who are saddened by any of the traumatic events happening, particularly in Palestine and around the world. As we know, oppression continues in many places. Um, I have wanted to have you on the show for a long time. I hate that this is the reason <laughs> that you're here, but I'm so grateful to you for coming on. I'm also really glad to be here and saddened that this is why we're coming together. Um, but yes, I it is an ongoing um, liberation struggle, um, and even with a ceasefire, uh, the violence has not stopped. Um, but I am so happy to just be here and recognize all of the work that so many people, um, cultural figures, people on the ground, um, are doing and have done, um, past and present. So bringing this in and you're a big sports fan we commiserate very often on arsenal and the other football ongoings in the world and um one of the things is the and i'll use this in quotation marks the polarizing topic i really hate that word of palestine and how it's been addressed in sports and until very recently we hadn't we've seen examples of Khalid Kanute, uh, michael bennett has been public and yusuf nurkic uh has of the mm -hmm. portland trailblazers and recently kyrie irving it's just too much going on in this world not to address. You know, it's it's sad to see this shit going on. Um, and it's not just in Palestine. It's not just in Israel. It's all over the world, man. And I feel it. Were there more? Yeah. So, so in days past, obviously, this has been um, at the forefront. And I'm sure many folks caught uh, Leicester City's uh, Hamza Chowdhury and Wesley Fafana uh, during the FA Cup final. Um, carrying a Palestinian flag during celebrations, uh, as well as Man United's Paul Pogba and Ahmad Diallo um, lifting up Palestinian flags in support of Palestinians under Israeli bombardment in Gaza, as well as Palestinians who uh, face armed mobs in so-called mixed cities like Haifa and Lida, and also the Palestinians who face settler police and military violence um, throughout the West Bank and in occupied Jerusalem. Uh, particularly, but not only in the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah. 
So, you know, this is not a new um, phenomenon. Perhaps the only unusual thing I would note about this moment in comparison to sports figures in the past is that there has been a general refusal uh, by the footballing bodies to which these players uh, kind of belong to, to sanction them. And so this is really different than, um, let's say, Canute's experience uh, in 2009 um, when he celebrates a goal uh, while playing with Sevilla um, by lifting his you know, shirt or his jersey to reveal a Palestine shirt. And he was fined, as I recall, uh, about 4,000 US dollars. Um, Mohammed Abu Treka, Egypt's, uh, one of Egypt's superstars, who's now in exile, of course, uh, from Egypt, uh, famously revealed a sympathize with Gaza shirt uh, beneath his jersey during a goal celebration um, while playing with the Egyptian national team during the 2008 African Cup of Nations. And, you know, these players were carded or sanctioned in other ways. Um, and so now I'm kind of like enjoying the the turnabout where, you know, the the FA is like, yeah, we're not going to do anything about <laughs> about this because there's a clear kind of sea change that I think really actually we have to think uh, the global black uprisings of the past many years, uh, in particular with black, the Black Lives Matter movement, for sort of changing how especially footballing bodies internationally have responded to politically active um, players, right? So, you know, football is not... Uh, uh, apolitical, and this has finally been like pushed in particular by black uh, sports figures throughout the world and in the U.S. I mean, we're still not in the clear. I mean, for example, like Lavazza, the coffee giant that supports and sponsors Arsenal, is trying to find a way to actually fire Mohamed Delaney mm-hmm. for tweeting about it. So there's still this censorship, and there's still this policing of athletes globally and i think that while you're right the fa is just like we gotta we gotta step back a little bit but there's still ways in which these this particular type of activism is is so is so staunchly staunchly policed Mm. and what is it what is it sophia that is so was so fiery about this topic like why why is it so fearful for people to discuss philistine you know I think a lot of people would have very different takes on why open advocacy for Palestinians and Palestinian liberation, in particular the end to the occupation, um, as well as the end to the siege on Gaza. I think a lot of people have very different answers uh, about why it's it's such a it seems like such a unique, uh, uniquely kind of hazardous or, or dangerous kind of a form of solidarity to enter into. And, you know, I'm obviously I'm not unbiased as a Palestinian American. Um, I have my own kind of takes on it. Um, and I think one of the resounding reasons, or I, I guess I'll kind of express this from the position um, that I am in as an academic, you know, I think there is a lot of uh, understandable kind of fear uh, about this being a religious conflict that's quote unquote ancient, right? And so like it would seem like, you know, why, why would we weigh in at this moment? Like, I don't know enough, right? Or like anyone who kind of speaks up, it's like, have you, what is your knowledge? Like, what is, what is the validity that you carry, like bring with you into this conversation? Um, so th- I think that that kind of framing that this is like an ancient religious conflict and, 
And it's about indigeneity, but who's the indigenous peoples? We have no idea. Like the Jews have a claim, the quote unquote Arabs have a claim. And I'm putting Arabs in quote because, of course, what we don't want to say is Palestinians. If we say Arabs or Muslims, <laughs> which is usually what we hear, it's easier to think of as sort of a, a religious conflict. Um, when in reality, of course, we're talking about a settler colony, which is the state of Israel. Um, that was in large part uh, established thanks to anti-Semitism in Europe, um, famously, right, uh, centuries-long anti-Semitism culminating on, um, in the Shoah, and in which uh, Jews who are Palestinian, who are Arabs, were also then caught up in um, and uh, exiled from Arab countries with the collusion of states like the UK, uh, as well as the state of Israel. And so what we're talking about is a settler colonial conflict. We're talking about colonization. And when you frame it like colonization, it's much easier to understand why so many sporting figures, not only, but I think particularly figures who bear a similar history of experience with colonization, right? Whether they are French, right? Like Pogba, um, who was born in France, right? Raised in France. And yet, right, has the experience of being an African French person and, you know, subject to as many uh, black and brown footballers are uh, incredible racial violence. That's like half of exactly. Le, it's like half of Les Bleus. It's literally like almost the entire squad, more than half. Right. And, and you know, the, the sort of like uh, black, blanc, beurre, uh, you know, celebration of like the 98 World Cup team like falls really short of like actually acknowledging the uh, endemic racism that these players have faced and continue to face like from the great 98 team to the present. And so it's really easy to understand why people like Sadio Mane and Riyad Mahrez, Algerian, right, um, uh, or Club Deportivo Palestino in Chile, uh, or Canute or Abu Treka are find it so easy to be invested, whether or not they are Palestinian. And actually, we haven't named any Palestinian players yet, um, but because they are they are commentating on uh, sometimes a religious connection, right? I think uh, especially we see Muslim footballers in Europe that come to knowledge about Palestine and the Palestinian liberation struggle through. Uh, a shared like faith uh, in Islam usually, but also I think primarily through an experience with racism and colonization, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is an experience that even very successful footballers experience, and it is not something that stops once they achieve that kind of visibility and fame. And so these players emerge out of a long tradition of other players who have used their platforms and mobilized them on behalf of others around the world. I mean, there's a, we're hearing about a lot of men in the struggle against occupation, ethnic cleansing, and settler colonialism. So where are the women? <laughs> like we're talking about, and you talked about leadership of, of global mobilization movements of Black communities, and we know mm -hmm. that for Black Lives Matter, it's queer Black women who are at the forefront, like the mm -hmm. WNBA are at the forefront. Where's What's the barrier here? Like, where are the women in this? So, and this will now, I'm taking my scholarly hat off and I'm going to put, <laughs> um, so I, I want to, I want to like at first acknowledge this great statement that the Palestinian Feminist Collective um, recently issued. This is a U.S. based network of Palestinian and Arab women and feminists um, who affirm that Palestine is a feminist issue. 
And this is important not only because also in the Palestinian liberation struggle, women have historically been at the forefront, right? Not only in terms of emotional labor, Mm -hmm. which I think we kind of get caught up in with the Black Freedom Movement, uh, with other third worldist uh, liberation movements like uh, Angola and Mozambique's wars for independence, uh, not only in emotional labor, but, you know, actively strategizing, right? And like boots on the ground uh, leaders of, of this movement. And so um, I want to just read a small portion of the Palestinian Feminist Collective statement because I think it's actually really um, illuminating. Um, and in this statement, they, quote, uphold the legacies of solidarity between Palestinian, Black, Indigenous, third world feminist, working class, and queer communities who struggle side by side with larger anti-colonial, anti-capitalist, and anti-racist movements in the U.S. and globally. And what it means to embrace Palestine as a feminist issue is to acknowledge and uplift and and kind of like throw our advocacy uh, towards Palestinian feminists who, quote, resist Israel's masculinist and militarized siege of Palestinian land and life. And what that means, and I'm not going to speak for the collective at this point, What that means for me, Israel's masculinist and militarized siege of Palestinian land and life, is look at how even in these last two weeks, deaths on the ground are reported. It's Mm -hmm. not men, women, and children, right, who Mm -hmm. are targeted by uh, naval strikes or Israeli airstrikes on Gaza. It's including women and children, right? So what are the Palestinian men in this scenario? Well, ostensibly, I guess we're supposed to imagine that they are the ones leading the charge. Whether you are pro-Palestine or not, you are imagining Palestinian men are somehow like directly involved in the struggle in a way that women are not, right? Women and children are cowering over here. But the thing is, is that men, women, and children and people of all genders, right, are equally subject to this violence. And so it is... Uh, the obligation, right, and unfortunately the responsibility that falls on all Palestinian peoples and all marginalized peoples, um, particularly those most exploited within those kinds of gendered structures in a society or racialized structures in a society that is besieged, um, to kind of be the ones who have to take up um, the charge and to lead the way. And so a masculinist and militarized siege is both on the part of the Israeli state, representing Palestinian men as threats. Um, But there was a time not too long ago, especially during the first intifada, where Palestinian women were equally frightening. Um, We can look to the French colonization of Algeria, right? Algerian women (laughs) were like the biggest threat because, you know, the the whole purpose of unveiling the Algerian woman was so that they couldn't like smuggle arms um, into uh, French areas of Algeria. And you see that, you know, depicted really beautifully in uh, Gio Pontecorvo's The Battle of Algiers. Um, so yeah, that's, that's sort of a long-winded sort of response, but it is to say that um, women, Palestinian women, have always been at the forefront and will remain at the forefront of this struggle, struggle. And Palestinian queer people in particular have done so much work particularly in communicating to folks in the West who want to be in solidarity with Palestine, but have perhaps sort of retrograde ideas about Palestinian or Muslim or Arab relations to gender and sexuality and and gender expression. Um, So yeah, we have a lot of folks um, that won't ever get the due that they deserve, but are leading the struggle nonetheless.
And we've seen, it's not as if we haven't seen this documented, like Amber Forrest came out with this documentary called Speed Sisters mm. and, and in 2015 and talking about using speed racing to bring mm. attention to and amplify not only that they're women, because again, there's the conflation of they're Arab, they're Arab, no one wants to say Palestinian, and they can't drive, but they're race car driving, mm-hmm. they're drag racing. And that was really powerful. And we've heard, you know, Hani Talija is a Palestinian a Christian woman mm-hmm. who has worked with FIFA about amplifying opportunity. But since then, because we know the infrastructure is being bombed, we know intentional mm-hmm. destruction of sporting places in Gaza is being destroyed to, mm-hmm. you know, sort of affect the mental health and the possibility and feelings of hope of youth there mm-hmm. through sport, because um, sport can be a vehicle for, you know, confidence and empowerment and, and, and healing for many youth all over the world, we see it. But since then, because that's, that's like 2015, that's a while ago, it's not to say that Are there movements on the ground using sports within Gaza and occupied places in Palestine to help youth? That's a really good question. Um, I don't know that I have an answer to that just because it's not something I've really looked closely at myself. Of course, now I want to look into that. (laughs) Yeah, let's go write something, (laughs) Soph. You're you're right, like sport is an avenue towards, um, you know, kind of building up the self and, and, and the nation, right? Like culture is, is super important to that. Um, I think what's really interesting is to look at this kind of the critical attacks on Palestinian cultural life um, that is not only limited to denying the tools or travel necessary to play. So uh, the Israeli state has a long record of denying travel visas to players in Gaza as well as the West Bank. Um, I'm going to use Palestine as a shorthand from now on because it is Palestine. Uh, so for both domestic and international tournaments, right? So uh, this is a regular occurrence in which uh, Palestine, you know, in 2006 was eliminated from the World Cup because they were the entire team was denied travel permits by the state of Israel. Um, and at the time, FIFA Deputy General Secretary uh, Jérôme Champagne, I don't actually know how to say their name. Jérôme Valky. But, you know, at the time he said this thing when he refused to reschedule the match, um, which was football cannot go faster than politics. But of course, it has to, because in 2007, the Israeli blockade on Gaza also banned one particular item from being imported, which were soccer balls, like the actual way that you play the game. Um In July 2014, two teenage footballers were shot in the feet and the legs by Israeli soldiers while walking home from a Mm -hmm. training session Mm -hmm. um, from a stadium in Jerusalem. And then, of course, there is uh, a moment that really resonated internationally in a way that maybe had not reached uh, audiences that tend to be skeptical of uh, the situation that Palestinians have endured for 73 years which was when four children were murdered by an Israeli naval shell uh, while playing football in a beach in Gaza. And they were two 10-year-olds, an 11-year-old, and a 9-year-old. And so this like deep resistance to the occupation that takes place within Palestinian cultural life, right, in in committing, recommitting to a cultural life, um, is not just symbolic, right? So football cannot go faster than politics. Um, I would say is a a deep misnomer because, in fact, sport is moving much faster than the political life 
um, of, let's say, international sporting organizations mm -hmm. because it is so much more urgent um, that this is not just something, a sport that we love to watch and, and you know, heckle each other about, um, but it is something that expresses the cultural life uh, of peoples all around the world. Uh, it's a it's a moment of connection, and I know um, our friend, formerly football as a country, hated when people would say football as a language. But I honestly, I'm still attached to that. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit indeed.com slash blue wire to start hiring today. Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire. That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed sentiment um, that sport is a language that draws people together and you see that with the number of sports sporting figures who in spite of you know either tacit or uh, literal threats for their careers um, continue to vocally stand up for Palestinians and for Palestinian liberation This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? This is Shireen, and I have struggled with anxiety and depression in the past. I've often turned to counseling and therapy to help me through. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. And there's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. But this service is available for clients worldwide. Flamethrowers, wherever you are, BetterHelp can help you. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy, which may not even be possible in a pandemic anyway. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read testimonials that are posted there daily. Visit betterhelp.com slash burn, that's better H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they have started recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. 
special offer for Burn It All Down listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash burn. That's betterhelp.com slash B-U-R-N. Yeah, I also agree that uh, football is a language. I think it's a way to communicate. I think it's a connector. Mm. I don't like the word unite because I, I'm just tired of words that are over. <laughs> I don't like diversity. I like there's words that I just stay away That's from. True. And one of them is, is unite. That makes me so irritated. But th- it's, it's a way to connect. Like you can go anywhere yeah. in the world. I was in Jordan a couple of years ago. You can play in the street. Qura in the street. You can go in Brazil. I was there playing in, in um, Foz de Guasu. Like, do you know what mm. I mean? Like you don't have to talk. You can can just come and use this as a form of communication. Um, and I think that's, and there's, you know, there's still that resistance that I see of athletes not talking about it. Like we see it's very brave of Pogba and when I use the word brave carefully, because I don't think that that should be, but recognizing that not everybody's in the space to be able to speak openly. It can be harmful, Mm -hmm. you know, to their, uh, I say this as a journalist, as a country where journalists Mm -hmm. are being policed for what they say on this particular issue. Mm -hmm. And I understand that, like not, there's the road is wide to activism. You know, there's many ways to disrupt and not everybody can be as public, Mm -hmm. you know, and I've struggled with Zinedine Zidane, whom I will say Dr. Azab loves as much or if not more than I do. The only other person on the planet who I can say that about but why he didn't speak up more you know at the time but mm. then understanding that they're restricted because if they're associated with Fédération Française du Football they can't so mm. they're, they're restricted but then so Pogba will use his Manchester space to be able mm-hmm. to do it so there's this it's a very intentional way like you're not going to see this man with a flag when he's playing for a country he can do it for a club so I mean, how much grace do you afford athletes? That's my little spiel. How much grace do you <laughs> afford athletes in not speaking up about this? I feel like I change my mind on this like every week, honestly, because sometimes it is so frustrating. Um, particularly last summer, right, in the midst of this global uprising um, led by uh, Black people around the world uh, in response to the shooting death of George Floyd at the hands of a police officer. Um, and all of the previous and subsequent uh, state-sanctioned murders of Black people in the U.S., the U.K., and elsewhere. It's, it's always frustrating, right, that, that like, certain sporting figures will not speak out in those moments, and, and you just really crave them saying something. Um, and yet, you're, you're right. I think that I kind of afforded some grace to folks like Mohamed Salah, for instance, who, yes, has in the past been quite vocal um, in solidarity with Palestinians, but is under the eye of the Egyptian surveillance state. And so when I think about Al-Nani and Salah and other international footballers and sporting figures who are from authoritarian countries and and retain their citizenship in those nations, Mm -hmm. they're all looking at somebody like Mohamed Abu Trika, who lives in exile, who had his assets seized by the Egyptian government. Um, Because the thing is, is when it wasn't politically popular, the Egyptian state was more than happy to throw these figures under the bus, right? And accuse them of Islamism or, or whatever it may be. And so... You know, I, I want Mohammed Salah to say more than like stop the violence. Or I think that was what was he tweeted <laughs> yeah. or, or put on Instagram the other day. I was like, oh, this is so boring. 
Um, but then I remember, right? Yeah, Salah and many, many other figures, they have family back home, you know, and, and I try to remember that and, and give them grace. And, and so the reality is also that, yes, I, we cannot know the interior lives of all of these figures who are very public to us mm-hmm. through their, um, you know, participation in, in, you know, international and national sporting Um, but you know, there may be other concerns that we don't know about. So I'm, I'm trying, you know, to be, to be generous. Um, I, I will not be generous to all the, um, famous post-colonial theorists who have yet to say anything about Palestine though. They absolutely can and they don't want to. No, I see them. I see them quoting Edward Said and then staying silent. Like, come mm-hmm. on, like white feminist academics. You don't think I see you? You know what I'm saying? Um, so here's the thing. Circling back to the question about women and not only specific to women, but I want to be mindful Athletes in the North America and the global North context may not know about this. What can we do as supporters, as fans, as people that are in the game, as media to help? Because I feel like there's a there's a disconnect. Like I said, you've got like Michael Bennett out there who is very much influenced by understanding, but he's few and far between. And if those that don't have a connection, whether it's to Islam or culturally to Arabs or have had experience with those communities and interconnectivity, how do how do we share this stuff? How does this information get disseminated to athletes and to sports communities in Turtle Island, North America spaces? You know, there's this great um, magazine, Jewish Currents, and they have they recently did a podcast the other day. They're just trying out podcasts, so it's it's not yet as good as Burn It All Down, but uh, <laughs> where it was in a very perpendicular way like a similar question which is like how do you talk to your Jewish relatives about Palestine right you know like how do we do this in our own communities Um, and essentially I think the question is how do you talk to people who have mostly an emotional and affective uh, relationship to the state of Israel um, but may not actually have thought very deeply or had reason to think very deeply about like what a settler colony is right Um, whether in Turtle Island and across Turtle Island or elsewhere overseas, Kashmir or Palestine, and it's and so on and so forth. Um, how do you broach that conversation with like your fellow, you know, supporters of Arsenal? Well, <laughs> we could ask the Celtics for <laughs> tips on that. Oh yeah, the Celtics are fantastic. <laughs> right, ride or dies. Like Absolutely. they will never not be in solidarity with like all marginalized peoples. For those that don't know, we're not talking about the Boston Celtics. We're talking about the <laughs> Scottish League, the football league. The Celtics are a team in Scotland that have been unequivocally supportive of Palestine. They have flags at their matches and they're just, yes, they're they're like a blueprint for how to do this in anti-oppression in sports. Yeah, and it's not separate, right? It's not a tangential issue. It is deeply informed by this is a Glaswegian team, right? So like by a particular historical relationship that many uh, of their supporters feel that they also have with empire. And I think it's actually, I don't think metaphor is always the way to go. And in fact, I think there's a lot of limits to like building solidarity out of analogy. But if you look at people like Muhammad Ali, if we look at folks like Sadio Mane, mm-hmm. uh, Eric Cantona, like mm-hmm. it's they're not speaking out of a deep well of like study, you know, for the most part of the relationship with Palestine and Palestinian liberation, but because they felt the call, you know, as 
people whose fans and whose like political, national, cultural affiliations sort of demanded their attention to the issue. Mm -hmm. So I think it's sometimes as simple as saying, well, why would the you know Celtics have this deep relationship to Palestine? Why is Paul Pogba and Wesley Fofana, you know, Fofana who's from Marseille, mm-hmm. um, why are they grabbing Palestinian flags on and running them down the pitch? Like, I think asking that question is just a really great way to maybe provoke yourself and your community into thinking about like, they're not Palestinian. Why do these people who ostensibly have no connection to this issue care so much? And I know that's kind of like, you know, facile, but I think it's a really good question to ask. And it's it's something that if you just ask yourself that question when you encounter something that seems, you know, quite bizarre, um, <laughs> is just a good way to start thinking like, all right, so what is the connection? What connection does Kentona have to Palestine? He's not Palestinian. Mm-hmm. Right. What connection do these French players, uh, you know, have to Palestine, to Algeria, like to racism in France, to Islamophobia within Europe? You know, these are some of the pathways, but they're not the only pathways. And I think one of the things that you brought up, Muhammad Ali, and I would be remiss if I didn't talk about him in the sense of that part of not addressing his Islam or even his connection to being pro-Palestinian and visiting refugees and, and talking about this issue is a part of the whitewashing of his history. And, you know, he was the greatest and and, and arguably one of the most powerful of, if not the most powerful, athlete activists we've ever seen. And you know, this part of his history is often omitted. And, it, you know, it gives you pause as to why, because this situation, as you mentioned earlier in our conversation, but, you know, and, and, and speaking of Michael Bennett that I've mentioned, and he's a friend of the show, that he has specifically remarked that Muhammad Ali was his role model for this, of how to go about it. Because Muhammad Ali, you know, embraced Islam later. He became Muslim later in his life, Um but had a connection and understanding to oppression and combating oppression. And that's what this was about. Although, you know, some people may not know that Jerusalem in itself is the third holiest city for Muslims in the world. And there is a spiritual, a deep spiritual connection there. But mm-hmm. his his connection was the same way he rejected Vietnam, uh, participating mm-hmm. in the Vietnam War. It was on a basis of colonialism and it was on a basis of anti-imperialism and it was on a basis of fighting oppression. So, I mean... My, my question is, do we still look to him as that blueprint? Or do you think there's more emerging? I think Muhammad Ali is a wonderful representation of a long history of resistance to the Israeli occupation of Palestine that has always been deeply intertwined with pan-African, pan-Arab, and third-worldist tri-continental solidarities. And Muhammad Ali who was beloved throughout the world and then not beloved and then beloved throughout the world again, right? In this kind of like evolution um, of his political life and how that is parlayed to different publics was stridently pro-Black, but also anti-colonial and anti-capitalist. These were commitments that he had to the idea that to this phrase that so many of us have heard over the last few years, that none of us are free until all of us are free. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And so when you look at Ali's evolution, like I think something that's really important is I try really hard in my own life um, and practice, especially as an organizer, not to exceptionalize Palestine. And what I mean by that is not to minimize or flatten like the profound like sorrow and violence, um, also the profound like resilience and resistance. Um, that characterizes uh, Palestinians and the Palestinian struggle. But also to note that like we are always learning from one another. Mm-hmm. And so Muhammad Ali represents this kind of, it's not natural, it's not organic, but a sort of trajectory that we can all kind of commit to where we note the connective tissue, not mm-hmm. the sameness, but the connective tissue across different struggles. So you're right. Ali, like Malcolm X, people who come to Islam or are Muslim, uh, who find themselves increasingly then informed about, let's say, like a Muslim international, including many, but not all Palestinians. But Islam is not the only through way, right? It's also a deep commitment to anti-colonialism, a deep Mm -hmm. commitment to anti-capitalism, a deep commitment to blackness, right? And black liberation. And this is a trajectory that is not restricted to somebody who is, you know, Muhammad Ali. (laughs) This is a trajectory that many of us um, can opt into. And that kind of brings back to me, you know, this sort of really early history of organized uh, resistance to the Israeli occupation of Palestine, which actually goes back to like, the first African nations who were admitted into FIFA, mm. um, which is Egypt in 1934, I believe, and Sudan um, in 1948. And Egypt and Sudan uh, in one of the first uh, World Cup qualifiers that they were eligible for immediately boycotted because they were slated to play the Israeli national team. The Israeli national mm. team, which was actually uh, emerged in in the 1930s, I believe, as the cultural arm of the Zionist movement, right? So a way that sport is also mobilized like for nationalist purposes um, and not for liberatory purposes. Um, And the Palestine Football Association founded um, in 1952 was not recognized by FIFA until 1998, right? So there's there's this larger history. um, And so within that, like when you need to be recognized by something like FIFA in order to participate in these international tournaments, it's not just on the basis of shared space or religion or racial identity or even shared struggle um, that leads to these kind of political commitments by cultural institutions, such as uh, sporting teams or amongst individual sports players. Um, But it's the commitment to say we are not going to recognize what is a settler colony imposed Mm -hmm. uh, on onto Palestine by European nations and by the United Nations, um, we're not going to recognize it to the point that we will not play them on the pitch, right? Mm -hmm. And so I believe in 1958, uh, Israel qualified for the World Cup without playing a single qualifying match because nobody would play them. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Nobody would play them. And that's and it's really interesting to also note that they're actually a part of, to avoid that moving forward, they were moved to yeah. UEFA to play in the European and they don't play in the Asian Confederation, which is 
you know, sort of geographically where they belong. So that was something else that, you know, the loophole that was found. And we talked about it on the show. Brenda, Dr. Brenda Elsie oh, yeah. is very critical of that. And we've talked about the spaces and the way that occupied land has been used. Mm-hmm. Stolen land is used to satisfy the State of Israel's League and many, many other things that keep coming up. So it's really funny to like round this off and say, oh, yeah, sports is, you know, people, the naysayers, sports isn't political. Oh, it is historically in every context. Always. But always, right? Um, and that's how you and I actually connected was through mm-hmm. those intersections of sport and football, particularly. Um, Soph is a, a killer player, too. Um, <laughs> Not anymore. Not well. I mean, none of us are. I haven't play, I haven't touched the pitch in a year. It'll take me a year just to be able to get back to maybe. So just to move this a little bit, and we're talking about these things that are heavy and being mindful of holding space, but also one of the most beautiful things that I've had the opportunity to witness and participate in from chosen family that is Palestine is holding joy through all this. How are you doing, Soph? And how are you holding joy in this time? Oh, my therapist and I talked about this yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) I find it, especially in the context that we are all in around the globe, um, with the panini going on, that it has been very easy to fall into doom scrolling and being very frustrated and worried and feeling useless, um, you know, and wanting to help and not being able to do anything. But then I remember that, um, you know, I have all of these accomplices all around the world and that we all do. And Mm -hmm. I seek them out, right, virtually and otherwise. And it's, it's a great way to make space to just like make some popcorn and gaze at a framed photo I have of Zinedine Zidane and, you know, text... (laughs) text my friends about anything except for how Arsenal is doing right now. Um, So that's what I'm trying to do. And gardening. I'm trying my hand at that. I'm not really good at it. Oh, how's that going? Uh, I don't think I really have the skills for this. I I don't know. We'll see what happens. I have a feeling I'm going to be looking at a lot of really sad pepper plants in a few weeks. Okay, well, hopefully, I, I mean, I wish you the best. I have a basil who's really angry with me right now. They're so, like, they're temperamental. And I'm sure. like, y'all, I raised four kids. Do I need this grief? But I have a balcony, little balcony garden thing happening. I have, uh, I think I overwater. It's the brown auntie in me oh, that's yeah. constantly trying to feed. So I have I have drowned uh, plants before. And, yeah, my son's lurking, laughing at me because, like, you know, I have a black thumb. But um, I think that's really important to say of also being in activist spaces and taking some time for yourself, you know, and putting that mask on and self-care as part of self-preservation. And it's a form of political warfare, which is what Audre Lorde said. And I want to thank you for being here because this is probably, you know, the most also, you know, therapeutic for me is to be able to talk and discuss Mm. and share information. And I thank you very deeply for having this conversation with me because it's not one that we hear out there very much in the sports world to begin with. And, you know, I thank you for that. Um, Lastly, where can our listeners find you and your work? Oh, I'm a sad academic, so a lot of it's behind paywalls, but um, I really value the contributions I've done for the Funambulist magazine, um, and I'm on tweeters, uh, <laughs> brown is the color, um, and I'm happy to always email people things that are behind a paywall, so 
don't be shy. I'm inarticulate today, but usually, you know, a little bit more put together. No, I, I think you're perfect. And I thank you so much. And I hope I get to see you again. The last time we hung out, we were looking around public libraries in New York City. And that was a lot of fun. I still have the selfies from that day. Um, so shukran kithiran so much for this. Your your presence is is so wonderful. And thank you so much for sharing this so brilliantly and in, in a way that we can understand. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.